theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hello, Dr. Joy. Hi, Dr. Amy. How are you today? I'm doing great, but I am wondering how we're going to move forward with so many shifts in education and people not prepared for them. Right. And, and I know we are dealing with this cultural shift, but we're also dealing with a technology shift too, right? One that was much needed, but a huge technology shift that happened abruptly. So we're dealing with kind of two cultural shifts, right? One from our identities and the other from this external technological age that's upon us. So I'm happy that we're going to have this conversation today to kind of address both of them. Exactly. And especially when we're talking about the students who may need us the most. Uh Talking about children with special needs. We're talking about emotional and behavior disorders. All of these youths are really being affected by these technology and cultural shifts. And I'm glad we're going to be talking to Paul Zions, who was appointed Dean of the College of Education of DePaul in July of 2009. Previously, he served as Dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan-Dearborn and Professor and Chair of Educational Foundations and Special Services at Kent State University and Professor at Central Michigan University. He was also president of the Council of Children with Behavioral Disorders. In his current position, Zions leads one of the largest schools of education in the Chicago area. DePaul's College of Education offers degree programs in early childhood education, elementary, secondary and physical education, special education, world language, bilingual, bicultural, cult curriculum studies, educational leadership, human services and counseling, and language literacy and specialized instruction, not to compete, of course, with GSU in the South suburbs. Zions is the author, co-author, or editor of five books and more than 25 articles and chapters a professor of special education. His research interests include educating children and youth with emotional and behavioral disorders. A native of Hartford, Connecticut, Zions began his career teaching in a reform school. We're going to talk more about that and an inner city high school. 
where he quickly became director of a successful program for juvenile delinquents. He earned his doctoral degree in educational psychology and special education from the University of Connecticut. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Zions. Thank you very much. You would think that after three years, we'd have uh, all the experience that we need turning the mute button off. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. How are you this morning, Paul? Doing great, thank you. Great to see you. You look great. Thanks. You know, Amy and I, when we started our careers, we didn't start as educators. I started as a research microscopist. Amy was also in the industry in her field in English. What drew you to education, Paul? Actually, I, I almost by accident. I was not the world's best student as a high school student. Uh, my father used to say I was in the upper lower third of my class and barely got out, frankly. And when I went to college, I found my niche. I absolutely loved college and, and never missed a moment of it and had probably a million majors because I thought every time I got a good grade, it was some kind of divine intervention. And when I graduated with you know, a number of majors, frankly, I was going to go into law school. There were some personal things that came up in, during that summer, which prevented me from doing that right away. I was going to take a leave or a uh, postponement of going in. And my sister was in a master's degree program at the University of Hartford, and her advisor was looking for a graduate student to help out uh, supervise student teachers. And of course, having no education courses in my background, I thought I'd be perfect for the job. I went in to meet with the chair of the department, I named Ed Weinswig, and he offered me the position. Three months later, I'm teaching in school. Uh, it, was, it was fabulous. I went, I went to school full-time for the first semester and then uh, did both the second semester while I was teaching. Yeah, education found me similar. I started substitute teaching at a Chicago public school. And they were like, we need you. You speak Spanish. We want to throw you in this bilingual classroom. So I got a provisional license, you know, like you was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> you want me to do what? And so I got my provisional license. And actually, when I wanted to go into administration, I had to get a regular license, right? So I went to DePaul University. You had an alt cert program way back then. You were probably one of the first universities to have an alt cert program. And I was able to do job embedded field experience and student teaching. So I didn't have to stop teaching. So you also went from teacher, classroom teacher to being an administrator. Talk about your focus and that shift from going from being a teacher, being an administrator, and now in higher education? Well, I was working in uh, what they used to call reform schools. I don't think they do anymore. And during the summer, that first summer, I had the opportunity to work in a project called Project Sphere, which was a kind of an upward bound program for kids in Hartford. And we had there was the director of it, guy named Father David Kern, he talked himself amazingly into all of these prestigious prep schools in the Hartford area and talked them all into letting them have their grounds during the summer. So from Monday through Friday, all over Connecticut, and I'm talking about Miss Porter School for Girls and, and uh, Loomis Chafee and I mean, some just all the major private schools had inner city kids from Hartford from Monday through Friday. And I had the opportunity to work in one of them 
And I said, wow, this is something. This is, this is something that the students that I was working with in the reform school would really benefit from. I talked the director into letting me run a program, which was totally the population that he was not interested in working with. And then we ran a program. It was, then I wrote a grant at 23 with the Department of Children and Youth Services in, in Connecticut. And we ran it for 12 months for another seven years. And the program continued after I left. So it was a wonderful program. We, we gave, you know, around the clock services to kids. It was in the mornings. During the summer, in the mornings, we did academics from nine to one. And then in the afternoon, we all did activities teachers, staff, and students together did all of these amazing activities together. And it was just a, just a wonderful program. I'm going to shift a little bit. When you were talking about round the clock, you know, we, there's this myth of between the hours of nine to three, we clock in, we leave our problems at the door, and we enter the classroom. So do the kids mm-hmm. whenever this the students are coming into our classroom, we open our books and we start teaching, but you were taught, you said round the clock and it made me think, what are we ignoring when it comes to social, emotional health and disorders? When we have this mindset about this myth that we can just clock in and the students just clock in and clock out of school. I don't think mo- I don't think most traditional teacher training programs say that that's the you know that myth is, exists, but I think that some of us walk into those classrooms thinking that it exists. That you know when you're in my classroom, I don't care what happens on the outside, what, what's on the inside. I would like you to behave like somebody that you're not, frankly. And so that that's really the struggle that I've had working with you know both in-service and pre-service teachers is help them understand the kinds of struggles that most kids have when before and after school and how it affects them during school. And very frequently I'll use their own experiences. I'll say things like, you know, imagine the worst experience that you've ever had in your life and how successful were you at school or at work and, or at home? And most often they would say, not at all. I said, well, just imagine that that's what many of these kids are experiencing all the time. And yet when we walk into the class, we're expecting them to say, guess what? Your life has now changed because you're in my classroom. So the problem, of course, is, is you know, underlying your question. And the underlying question is, what do we do? And we certainly don't have the resources right now, or we, if we do, we're not expending them to have wraparound services for those students that need them. And wraparound isn't just education and other services from nine to three. It's you know, what are kids doing from 3.01 to 9 the next morning? How are they in, in Chicago, in some areas of Chicago, or can they even safely walk to school and, and get home? You know, so th- this, this is such a giant issue and such a dry, giant problem here and everywhere. Oh, I agree. And, it, and when we think about people who go into the classroom to be teachers, sometimes they are just academically brilliant. They know their content. They know students and what they're supposed to know about student behavior and they know their science and their math and their social sciences but that there can also be that unawareness of how to be culturally responsive could you talk to that a little bit 
Yeah, I think on two levels, I think there's two parts of that question. One is the part that anyone can teach if they're smart. And I think we have some quote unquote teacher reform programs out there that are recruiting students who graduate college from the best colleges, frankly, and do a like a three week boot camp and have them go into a classroom and in many cases, in most cases, fail miserably. In many cases, they don't last more. After two years, that many of them leave. And at one point, it was in the 80 percentile. I don't, I haven't seen any recent data on it, but I'm sure it's pretty high as far as leaving the field. So just because you're smart, it doesn't mean you're a great teacher. You need to learn how to teach. In fact, I've often said that you know, at colleges and universities, you know, think of the smartest teacher you ever had, and the one that couldn't teach that was also the smartest teacher you ever had. And it's painful. So I think that that kind of that kind of myth again needs to be expelled. That that kind of myth that that just because you're smart you should be in the classroom. Let's recruit these smartest teachers and put them in, and then they should be fine. That you know this is this is a craft. You know it's a, a large skill set to become teachers. Now I will say that you know after five years, if those teachers who weren't adequately trained stay on. They tend to be like the six-year teachers once they get into the six-year teachers. So they learned a lot on the job. The problem is how many kids suffered in the, in the process, you know, during that two or three years where even the best eventual teachers have a difficult time. We don't give, we don't give the best doctors the most difficult surgery cases when they first start. They, they work them in. We don't give the, the best lawyers you know, the smartest lawyers, the first year lawyers, the hardest cases in, in most law firms. And yet we put these students who are from the best and brightest schools, no question, into the most difficult schools and we expect them to succeed. The model is, is a flawed model. Right, and I would also add to that, that with teachers, because you, as you know, we're dealing with this teacher retention issue. When we talk about marginalized kids in high poverty schools. We've put these teachers and many of them new teachers in these very tough situations. I myself started in a very tough situation. I was in an inner city school and my first classroom was 40 non-English speaking students. And I was given textbooks and then the door closed. No mentor, no additional support. You know, but one of the things that I had that I know that we all have in common is that we all had grit. So we all had that mindset that I'm going to change the world. You know, then you find out that it's just not that easy. But we went into it with these are things that I want to impact. These are things that I want to change. So I really like the fact that you talked when you talked about you expose your pre-service teachers kind of for what's expected. Because oftentimes when we're preparing the candidates, we use traditional models, we expose them to, you know, standard pedagogy, and we don't prepare them for all the rough things that they're going to face. And it doesn't help to build retention if we're not preparing them, you know, because they think I had a chemistry teacher candidate that I was supervising for student teaching. And that's, and he moved from the industry to and in middle age to teaching because he wanted to make a difference. And he and that blackboard were having a really good time. <laughs> and the kids were having a really good time on their cell phones. And there was no connection. 
he had no idea of what it took to actually get through to the students. And many of, and he was at a school that definitely needed some wraparound services that was not there. And many schools don't offer kids all the things that they need. And you say you can't be everything for kids, but some of these kids, you have to try to be as much as possible. There was no way I could teach without giving my kids Cheerio. So as a new teacher, when I had children myself and as a new teacher, I couldn't afford much. So the cheapest thing for me to get from Sam's every week was a big thing of Cheerios. And I would go through a big thing of Cheerios every week. And so they had a bowl and I would put, they would eat dry cereal throughout the day because they were hungry. You know, it's funny. And, and I couldn't, you know, that was a need that I, I, I felt that I could meet. So you try to fill in all these gaps. So, uh, so there's a question here, you know, what do you see as your role of impacting education as a change agent? I, I happen to work with you on several committees and I know that you're an advocate for keeping high standards. Mm -hmm. We do not improve teacher retention. We do not attract new teachers when we dummy down the profession. So you're a strong advocate for keeping high standards. What do you see your role as impacting education? Well, before you before I go on, I want to respond to something that you just said. When I was a new teacher, I didn't have any money either, and we got paid a whole lot less. So what I used to do, I my classrooms were classrooms of kids that were labeled as having emotional behavior disorders. And I used to walk, I used to go to all of these stores and say to them that I work with special ed kids. And can you give me something that I could use as rewards and awards? And what would happen is I would have baskets full of stuff for free that I would get to give my students the same thing that you're talking about, whether it was food or magazines for when just, and I didn't give it to them as prizes. I just gave it to them just so they could have it in, in the room themselves. To get to your, you know, your answer, it's, it's such a monumental question. And I think that every part of my career has seen me do different things in that scope. I think in the very, very beginning, my job, I saw my life as, as impacting the lives of, of adolescent kids that were really off track in a, in a lot of ways and tried to offer them the opportunities to succeed. And my, my argument when I was funding with the state board at that particular time was, if we just turn two kids around, it's going to pay for this program because of the, of the economic damage that it would, that it would cost the state of Connecticut, the amount of money it would cost to either incarcerate these kids, deal with the kinds of outcomes that went on in, in their families throughout their lives. So if we could just turn two kids around at that particular point, that would be important to me. And later on, because of this program's success, I was fortunate enough to be invited into a doctoral program. And the argument, in quite ego-driven argument, frankly, was, well, you just think you're impacting 30 students all year, every year. How would you like to impact more? Come to the college, come to a university. That way you could teach classes of kids and, and of teachers. And just think of how many, how much work they'll do that will, that will carry on the work that you're doing. And I learned very quickly that I might be teaching a class of 30 students, but all of them had different kinds of goals and aspirations as well. And while I like to think sometimes I'm the center of the universe, they did not agree with me. So my 
my plan was frankly to try to impact a few of them. I mean, impact all of them as much as I possibly could, but be satisfied with my with my you know work if say 10% of the class followed it to the T, actually bought the kinds of things that we were that we were teaching and, and would do the kinds of work that were going on in the classroom because there's such a disconnect at times between the work that we do at colleges and universities and what's going on in schools. And there's a lot of reasons for it. And many of the reasons are that students are in our classes to get the degree and don't frankly see that generalization of the stuff that they've learned in, in the classroom. It's not being helped by some administrators that say, you know, I don't care what you learned at, you know, wherever you went, your education begins today. Your education begins because now you're in the school. And unfortunately, some of these schools don't exhibit best practices. They're, they don't deal with evidence-based training. You know, I saw that impact was as a, as, a, as a university faculty member. And then when I entered the dark side, you know, as far as being a, a dean, I saw my job being different. And that is to get into a place, to work in, a, in an institution where the faculty really believed in helping students and really were doing a lot of work to support K-12, pre-K-12 students in, in, in schools. And all they needed were the opportunities to do more, frankly, or to get the support that I could get them. And so when I was, my first dean job was at the University of Michigan Dearborn. My second one, I've been at DePaul for 13 years. I've been very, very fortunate to work with unbelievably capable faculty who, who really buy into the notion of helping solve the problems of the citizenry of, of Chicagoland, frankly. And so my job is, been to support them. My job is to help raise money for them. My job is to is to make sure they get tenure and promotion if I possibly can, is to do all the mentoring that I possibly can. So it's a different kind of skill set. And then, you know, and as you talked mentioned, Joy, also to try to deal with this on a policy level is to try to impact what's going on, you know, in the state or in the city. We've had a, a lot of turnover in Chicago. You know, I've worked in Detroit, I've worked in Cleveland, I worked in Hartford. I'll be frank with you, you know, when I came to Chicago, I was stunned by the distrust that a lot of teachers had about what was going on in their school district. So it was it was almost more, you know, more difficulty in morale on that mega level of what's going on. And I found that if rather than solving the world's problems, I had to, you know, lower my expectations a bit and see if we could work with individual schools here in Chicago and, and help them grow and develop. So it, it's really a multifaceted job, frankly, as being a dean, and, and it's been a great one. And, and being at DePaul, frankly, which is such a mission-driven university, our social justice mission, I, I've never been to a place that really practices it, what it preaches so frequently, that it really is the goal here to, to get out there and, and, and help folks. Long-winded answer. Well, I can appreciate developing the partnerships with districts and with schools, because the last thing we want is there to be a disconnect between what candidates are learning in the classroom mm -hmm. at the university, and then to go into a school district and say, no, this is how we do things. Right. But when there's that conversation together, you are doing things that are in line with one another and with best, best practices. So I can appreciate that social justice mission should include 
that partnership. And, you know, we aspire to have some good partnerships, even stronger partnerships in the South suburbs as well. We are talking to Paul Zients about his path in education and cultural shifts and what we do about them. So let's talk about more about cultural shifts. The Illinois State Board of Education has passed that we will have culturally responsive teaching and learning standards. It's a new program proposal. We now have program coordinators at GSU working on implementing these standards into the curriculum. And we've really thought about how these look in the introductory stages, the intermediate and the final stages. I know as Dean, you're looking at the 10,000 foot view. Um, what kind of advice have you given your faculty and program coordinators and what, as far as implementing and what you see as a positive direction for these standards? I haven't had to give any advice. <laughs> our, our associate dean, uh, Dr. Barbara Rikoff, really picked up this and ran with it. Frankly, with the murder of George Floyd and all of the issues that have been going on over the last three years, I think we've redoubled our efforts into taking a look at this issue. It has permeated throughout the College of Ed as far as you know, developing curricula, working on programs, taking a, an inward look of what we're doing. So this, one doesn't want to say that a, that a state dictum arrives at a good time, but frankly, this was the opportune time for us to kind of integrate all of the work that we've been doing already. We've received no pushback on the curricula, on the standards. It's, it's just neatly fit to, in many, many cases, to the work that we were already doing. But as far, and you're right, as far as the actual work that was done, as any dean who's honest will tell you, it's being done by the people who do the work, the teachers, you know, the, the faculty, the, you know, the program directors. It's, but as far as moving forward on it, this was almost, yeah, what's next kind of thing. It really was not, it was not, it didn't, it didn't engender an enormous amount of conversation, you know, and discussion within the college because we were really just fitting in, in many, many cases, what we were already doing. So there were no new goals that we were going, oh my God, now another thing on our plate, you know, it was, it just fit nicely with it, with how we do business here. We are definitely in the best of times and the worst of times in education, to paraphrase Charles Dickens. <laughs> Our classrooms are filled with diverse students from different ethnic backgrounds, race, culture, social, economic, you name it. You know, add to that, and thanks to COVID, I guess we could thanks COVID, we're equipped with a lot more technology and other resources to promote student learning. But still, the teacher population and as James Banks predicted over 30 years ago, that in 2020, I can remember this, I worked on my, I finished my dissertation. Oh, I shouldn't really say this in a podcast, <laughs> but I finished almost 30 years ago. And it was amazing that James Banks was writing about 2020. And he said the teacher population is still going to look similar 
that we're still going to have about 80% white females. And oh my gosh, that's, that's true. I actually happen because I sit on the board, I happen to have seen your submission of your CRTL standards to DePaul University and one of the new program proposals, which was done very well. Thank you. And, you know, my hope is that it's not a, just a perfunctory act of checking boxes for many institutions. And that's my fear that that will happen and that it's not thoughtful and it will not impact change. How do you see the CRTL standards impacting teacher candidates and the students that they will teach in the future? How do you see it actually helping in a real meaningful way? Well, it's, you know, understanding the students that's are, that are in your classroom, frankly, and, and I hope personalizing it in a way that you could bring the teachers and help the teachers understand how they fit within this and how even their own histories fit in, in a similar kind of story that a lot of our current students have. I mean, it's, it's not that far away, not that long gone that, that you have that. So I think that that's, a, that's an important aspect. I think we also have to redouble our, our efforts to, to make our classrooms, to have our own classrooms more diverse. You know? And I think it's, it's incumbent upon colleges and universities to work extra hard to make sure that they have a diversified faculty. You know, I had, and we've done that. In fact, we're probably the most diverse college of the 10 in, at DePaul. I saw, I believe like nine out of our last 11 full-time hires were faculty of color. I had a fact, I had a student tell me that the reason why she came here was that her teachers finally look like her. Okay. Now when that impacts her, can you imagine the impact it has in a classroom? And if you come to our graduations, you'll see we have a, a, a not ideal, but a, a very large group of underrepresented populations in, in classrooms and teacher um, among the teacher workforce and counselor workforce as well, by the way. So, I mean, there are just so many, you know, answers to your question of, about how we're going to be able to do these kinds of things. It's, there's, a, there's you know, all the economic issues. Right now, the, the to, be, to go into a very, very difficult job, you know, there's always been a teacher demand. 30 years ago, there was a teacher demand but I probably should say those 30 years ago, there was a teacher need. There really wasn't a teacher demand. In, in special ed and in math and science, there's always been a need, but we haven't had a whole lot of students filling those needs. And that the reason is because there's a whole lot of reasons. One is, as you know, I don't have to preach the choir on this. You know, it's not the most, we used to say when I was a kid, if they said you were a teacher, they would go, wow, you know, you're crazy to, to be a teacher. Now they say, wow, you, you really are crazy to be a teacher. Two different definitions of crazy. And one is crazy good. And one is what's wrong with you that you're going to be a teacher. And the populations that we used to bring into the classroom when Banks was talking about 80% white, if you look at it with regard to, you know, social class, et cetera, now there's so many fabulous opportunities that pay well open to the best and the brightest. Teaching's not one of them. So, you know, you don't have to be a market economist to understand the kinds of struggles that we're having and right. how we're gonna do these things. And until we change things, I don't wanna sound pessimistic, but I don't see it breaking real soon. I think the people who wanna become teachers 
who dream of being teachers, who, you know, I, I think we had this conversation was, I think that there are two kinds of teachers and I'm really generalizing. And one is that comes out of the womb almost and says, you know, I'm going to be a teacher. And, right. you know, they, they torment their, their brothers and sisters and neighborhood kids in the, in the basement of their house. And they were the teacher and they're all students and they turn out to be fabulous teachers. And then there's the other one that wants to change the world. You know, that right. if I'm going to teach, I'm going to make sure this is going to be fabulous. And many of those, by the way, you referenced them earlier, are those who go into different professions and say, nah, you know, I, I just really want to be a teacher. It didn't pay mm -hmm. as well, but I want, I, this is what I want to do. But then there's a whole big giant population out there that we should be appealing to that, we're, that we haven't done a real good job of appealing to. There should be a third group. There should be a group that says this is a, a, a valuable and profession that's going to pay me well enough to take care of my family now and in the future. And we've just done a real good job saying, well, the future, let's, let's call it pension reform. Let's call it reform and we'll, and we'll kill pensions and we'll kill tenure and we'll, all the kinds of things that we, were, that we were supporting you on because we understand that the teaching profession doesn't pay well. We're gonna take those away too. It, it's, we're killing ourselves here. I, I know, and I agree with you, and we talk about this often. We have this challenge with teachers. We want bright teachers, and these bright teachers, they can do a lot of other things than teach. When we look back 60 years ago, you had a few things you could do as a woman, right? Yep. You know, you're going to be a secretary, you're going to be a nurse, you're going to be a teacher. These are boxes that you were placed in. But now you have these bright minds that say, I could be a thousand different things. So it's not that, so we're share, we have to share the pool now, right? When we didn't have to share the pool before. And now, how do we say teaching over any of these other choices? Like you said, how do we make it attractive? I think that there's work for us to do for you to continue to do at the state level, instead of us grabbing these low hanging fruits, right? Of making this path easier, making that putting, you know, you've been subbing really bad for 10 years. So now you can become a teacher. So instead of us grabbing these low hanging fruit, let's depend and rely on things that would really attract teachers. They're going into this noble profession, and at least at a minimum, you want them to be at their best, right? Yep. You want to make sure they have the resources. You want them to be at their best. You don't want to torment them once they become a teacher. <laughs> well, you, you, you know, you mentioned early on that today about retention, and I was very, very concerned about retention when always, but when I was a researcher and Many years ago, around 2000, actually, uh, 2000, it was, yeah, 2000, I was asked to, to work with student teachers, teachers in, in Michigan when I was working there to find out about retention. And my hidden agenda was this, these data that showed that 50% of special ed teachers were gone in five years. Well, we created a survey. We surveyed every single student teacher in Michigan in 2000, in the, in the, in the spring of 2000. And what we found that was stunning was when we asked, what do you see yourself doing in five years? Now, these are student teachers. Half of them said something else. Okay. Like 10 or 
like, and there was a small percentage that said, I'm not even gonna teach next year. And what the conversation that came out of this was that when you get, when you leave after three years or four years or five years from your field and you're asked, why did you leave? Many times you're gonna do the familiar tropes, you know, not enough support, parental, whatever, kids don't care, whatever, not, you know, too much paperwork, whatever kinds of things we say. You're never gonna say, you know, I was asked that question five years ago and my answer was I didn't, I wasn't gonna teach for five years. I never intended to teach for five years. So it's really not burnout. It might more be a failure of commitment that I understand that this job is not a lifetime job for me because the benefits, and I don't mean economic benefits, but the lifetime benefits aren't that rewarding. I'm not going to be good to my family or to myself if I stick with this position. We didn't follow up, obviously, because these were surveys after. We didn't follow up to find out if that's what they were thinking. But boy, when that came at me, I said, you know, and we asked when they wanted to be a teacher. And it was really interesting about that. Those teachers that said, I've always wanted to be a teacher, they were the ones likely to say, oh, in five years, I'll be teaching. You know, 10 years, I'll be teaching. So we never, we're not losing those, the lifelong, I want to be a teacher. We were losing the ones who were fragile, fragile commitment. Wow, that is a great reflection on some research that you've done. And I wonder about other discoveries you've might have, you might have made about education over the course of your career. That is really enlightening and it's in itself. But what about these discoveries that you've made and how to effect change? Mm-hmm. Well, as far as discoveries with regard to research, I, when I was a classroom teacher, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to a large number of greats, frankly, in our, in our field. These, uh, the Institute of Living, which was a institution in Hartford, would bring in these fabulous speakers, Clark Moustakas, Albert Ellis, a whole bunch of folks who would come in and train. Glasser, who, by the way, told me that I would should get out of teaching and a lot of other folks. He told me because I said to him, when you have choices and you ask my students what their choices are, they're not going to choose the right path because they're gonna choose the path that is part of their lives, that's easy. They're not afraid of going to jail. They're not afraid of going to report. All of their friends go, this, it's, a, it's a fear of ours, but not a fear of theirs. So he said, I was a little bit cynical. The fact of it is, is I, I resonated with the work of, of Al Ellis, trained me among others, and I took his work and I translated it to classroom. And that's a lot of my publications, a lot of my research is putting a rational, which was then rational mode of therapy, now it's rational mode of behavioral therapy in the classroom, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. I found that this was successful for me because I resonated so well with what it was. And I wasn't a a behaviorist. I have many behaviorist friends, but I was not a behaviorist. I found it very difficult to be consistent as a behaviorist. I found, you know, to raise, to get a million points for something was not working. The institution that I was teaching in was very, very behavioral and was on a level system. So because that worked for me, my job was then to do research on it and to translate that into what could be an effective teaching model and how that model 
can help teachers sustain in the classroom on a lot of different levels. One is understanding what disability is, understanding what mental health is, being tolerant of it as opposed to being you know, resistant to it. How does an IEP say he, a kid with, for lack of a better word, a kid with mental illness is going to be able to reduce his out of seat behaviors by 10 every year. You know, it's just like saying by the end of the year, this blind kid will be able to see right. or see better. Okay. Right. Um, these are immovable kinds of disabilities. We would never expect that from anyone. We wouldn't say, oh, this kid has cognitive disability. He's got an IQ of whatever. We're going to raise his IQ 10 points. We would never be stupid enough to say that. But yet we say that with kids with emotional behavior disorders. Mm -hmm. So my job was to try to teach teachers, both in-service and pre-service, to understand what disability was through the RET model. And that is, this is something that you can't, you can't change the disability itself, but what you can do is help that student navigate with that disability. So whether that environment is going to be able to be more conducive, and that's our job as teachers, to not go crazy every time somebody acts their disability, or for the kid to understand what kinds of tools he or she's going to have to use to navigate that. And, and to me, you know, in, in special ed, we, sub, we, we have something called the least restrictive environment. To me, that environment is an environment where the kid with a disability is not being handicapped in it because of that disability. Okay, and that's really the key. So that's, that was the vast majority of the work that I did as a faculty member and some as when I entered administration. Paul, you said something that's interesting. This means you have to come back. I want to have another conversation about children with special needs, especially when we're talking about IQs, mm -hmm. because we have a lot of people floundering out there with low IQs that never manage what to do with my situation. Mm -hmm. And instead of having a promise and a good future, they're engaged in a lot of other different activities. So that's another conversation. That's a very difficult conversation that I would love for us to have. But I have a last question for you, Paul, because I, I know that you will be retiring soon in the next five years or so. I've probably extended it. <laughs> And hopefully you'll stay in the game even beyond that as a consultant. If you could write the rules, <laughs> what would be your hope for any rule changes and for future teachers? Help me understand your, I, I don't fully understand your question. When you, if I could write what rules? You know, our rules for, that we have for our rule changes with the system with Illinois, and not just for Illinois, even in our, our federal laws, where it relates to teacher education and what we can do, what we can't do, how we, how we treat teachers, what would, what would you change? Well, I'm not sure I would change a ton, frankly. I think that we, we know what good teaching is. So uh -huh. there's, there's a whole lot of research about what good teaching is. And I think traditional teaching education programs have that fairly well nailed down. 
good ones, you know, the ones that are following the, the, those rules. I don't know if we need to have 10,000 standards that have to be checked off every time because I think that's a different, that's a different issue right. when, we dice, when we dissect and make, you know, I think that's kind of crazy. But I also think that we've traditionally done this fairly well. There's no evidence that what we've done over the last 10 years created better teachers than, and I'll talk about the rules, than we had before. Right. And ironically, most of the deans, et cetera, across the country were against those changes. And now they're mostly for them. It just shows you what acculturation can, the impact of, of, of acculturation. So to be frank with you, as long as there's evidence-based teacher training, whether it's, and here's the important part, whether it's pre-service, you know, service, whether it's in-service, whether it's you know, residency programs, there's a number of fabulous models that are out there that would be good. So I, 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 I'm not so, I'm, I'm only concerned when it comes to rules is that we follow, we, we make sure that there is a bar that has to be set for, and I don't mean this in, in a bad way, minimal standards, because you don't learn as much until you get into that setting. I mean, I think they should be, I think right now, by the way, we have minimal standards. That's, that's my point. That will prepare students to get into the classroom. And ideally, that we have some kind of induction program for them as well. I think that that's the key. And the induction program should be a partnership between the local university and the school, or this cadre, you know, perhaps of, of quote unquote consultants who are part of the university, but don't have to be full-time faculty. In other words, I'm sure you have, I know we do a large number of wonderful adjunctive faculty who would be fabulous in, in bridging the stuff that we do here at DePaul with, with a school. So to me, that's really what it is. I, I wouldn't get so bogged down in creating new standards. And I mean, unless you found something, you know, I'm no, not sure, no. we, I'm not sure know, we found a whole lot of new things with all this stuff. Right. I, I, I like what you said and what I get out of it is, you know, we need to continue to have high standards. We need to set our, by, our bar high. And again, kudos to DePaul University. When I was there a long time ago, it's been a long time, all of my professors were people that were in the field because I went to a, through a Saturday program. And so all of my professors were people who were currently working in the field, and many of them worked in urban schools. So I learned a lot, as we have learned a lot from you today, Paul. And again, I cannot wait to have you back again so that we could talk about some other things. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I appreciate you, all of your wisdom. And I do look forward to another conversation because... We just scratched the surface on special education, the patterns, the expectations, the population, and there's so much more to say. It's one of the nice things about being old. All of a sudden you have wisdom. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning, Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. 
What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.